Shabbat Shalom. My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and thank you for joining us once again for our Arab Shabbat broadcast here on B'nai We thank you for engaging with our ministry each and every week to enjoy this broadcast, to worship together, and to hear from the Word of the Lord. Um, in all the ways that you might be watching, whether that's on the Internet, on our mobile app, Facebook Live, or any one of our television apps, wherever you might be around the world, we thank you for being a part of this ministry. As always, if you're blessed by this free broadcast and if you're stirred in your heart to make a donation, you can do so at llgive.com. There's many different ways that you can give. You can make a one-time gift, sign up as one of our monthly donors uh, that each come with uh, certain uh, perks depending on the level of your giving. You can also give to the Lynn Judah Memorial Fund that helps uh, people come to any of our events that are in need of some financial assistance. All the different ways that you can give, you can see all the options there at llgive.com. Right now, it is March 20th. We're still in the midst of uh, Tabernacles registration that began at the beginning of the month. If you would like to join us in Chandler, Oklahoma for our for the biggest event of our of the year, uh, you can sign up at tabernaclesevent.com. Uh, registration is, uh, like I said, open now. RV sites fill up very quickly. So if uh, you have never been before, we encourage you to come check out an amazing time of worship, teaching, uh, fun for the whole family at the Feast of Tabernacles. For those of you that have been before, you, of course, know uh, the amazing time that it is to spend with the brethren, to get out of our homes, and to celebrate that feast and that appointed time. We hope that everybody can join us there for that event. Like I said, registration just opened in the last couple of weeks, and we hope to see all of the brethren there. We also encourage you to engage with the ministry in uh, any of the other ways, uh, whether it's coming to any of our other events, such as sending your youth to Camp Yeshua or to Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks uh, that we hold in Dallas. You can go to ShavuotEvent.com for information for that and CampYeshua.com for information for our Messianic Youth Summer Camp. We also encourage you to sign up for our free monthly publication, the Yavo. You can go to YavoMagazine.com. I know that's a lot of websites, but uh, YavoMagazine.com where we have free articles and you can sign up to receive our free monthly magazine in your mailbox, whether that's your email or your uh, physical mailbox uh, each and every month. And that's another way to uh, keep up with all the teachings and the products that we do and we provide here with this ministry. We thank you for being a part of this ministry and helping to support uh, the work that we do here and all the different outreaches that we do. Thank you for being a part of Lion and Lamb Ministries. Now, let us uh, close out the week by separating the week uh, from the Sabbath now with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Now the Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech 
Bore prihagafen. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the chamotzi, the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadunai Eloheinu melech haolam Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu etarunai hamvorach. Baruch Adonai Hamvarach Le'olam Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Micha Mocha. Micha Mocha Ba'elim Adonai Micha Mocha Nedahar Bachudesh Nohorat Echilot Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat, la-asot et ha-Shabbat, l'adrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael, othi le-olam, k'shashet yamim asadonai et ha-shamayim v'et ha-aret v'yom ha-shavi, Shabbat v'yinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you'd all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad 
כבוד מלכותו לעולם ועד. ישוח המשיח הוא אדוני. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol meodecha, v'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha ha'yom alevavcha, v'shinantam l'avanecha, V'depardabam b'shivtecha, b'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derechu shakbika, uv'kumika. U'kershatam la'ota yadecha, v'heyu la'totavot b'inenecha, u'chetavtam ha'mozuzo b'techa, u'vishirecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. And he shall lift you up higher and higher. And he shall lift you up. Humble thyself. Side of the Lord, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up higher and higher, and he shall lift Fashion against the swing stand, the battle belongs to the Lord. You will sing glory, honor, power, and strength to the Lamb. We'll sing glory, honor, power, and strength to the Lamb. When the power of darkness comes in like a The battle belongs to the Lord To raise up a standard The power of His blood The battle belongs to the Lord And we'll sing glory Honor Power and strength to the Lamb We'll sing glory Honor Power and strength to the Lamb Do not fear, the battle belongs to the Lord. 
Take courage, my friend, your redemption is near. The battle belongs to the Lord, and we'll see glory on earth. Power and strength to the Lamb, we'll see glory on earth. Power and strength to the Lamb, we'll see glory on earth. Power and strength to the Lamb, we'll see. Oh 
Shabbat Shalom. Please join us for the reading of the double portion Vayikel Pekudeh, chapter 35. Then Moshe assembled all the congregation of the sons of Israel and said to them, These are the things that Adonai has commanded you to do. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to Adonai. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Moshe spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the thing which Adonai has commanded, saying, Take from among you a contribution to Adonai. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as Adonai's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, and blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, and porpoise skins, and acacia wood, and oil for lighting, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and setting stones for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful man among you come, and make all that Adonai has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and its coverings, its hooks and its boards, its bars, its pillars and its sockets, the ark and its poles, the mercy seat, and the curtain of the screen, the table and its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light and its utensils and its lamps, and the oil for the light, and the altar of incense and its poles, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the doorway at the entrance of the tabernacle the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its sockets, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the woven garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aharon, the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moshe's presence. 
Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought Adonai's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for all the holy garments. Then all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets, all articles of gold. So did every man who presented an offering of gold to Adonai. Every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and porpoise skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought Adonai's contribution. And every man who had in his possession acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. All the skilled women spun with their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet material and in fine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred with a skill spun the goat's hair. The rulers brought the onyx stones and the stones for the setting of the ephod and for the breastpiece and the spice and for the oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. The Israelites, all the men and women whose hearts moved them to bring material for all the work which Adonai had commanded through Moshe to be done, brought a freewill offering to Adonai. Then Moshe said to the sons of Israel, See, Adonai is called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Yehuda. And he has filled him with the spirit of Elohim, in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all craftsmanship, to make designs for working in gold, and in silver, and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for the settings, and in the carving of wood, so as to perform in every inventive work. He has also put in his heart to teach, both he and Aholiav, the son of Ahasimach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to perform every work of an engraver, and of a designer, and of an embroiderer, in blue and in purple and in scarlet material and in fine linen and of a weaver as performers of every work and makers of designs. Chapter 36. Now Bezalel and Aholiav and every skillful person in whom Adonai has put skill and understanding to know how to perform all the work in the construction of the sanctuary shall perform in accordance with all that Adonai has commanded. Then Moshe called Bezalel and Aholiav and every skillful person in whom Adonai had put skill everyone whose heart stirred him to come to the work to perform it. They received from Moshe all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work in the construction of the sanctuary. And they still continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing, and they said to Moshe, The people are bringing much more than is enough for the construction work which Adonai has commanded us to perform. So Moshe issued a command, and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp, saying, Let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more, for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. All the skillful men among those who were performing the work made the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material, with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. Betzalel made them. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain 4 cubits. All the curtains had the same measurements. He joined five curtains to one another, and the other five curtains he joined to one another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. He did likewise on the edge of the curtain that was in the outermost in the second set. He made 50 loops in one curtain, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite each other. He made 50 clasps of, of gold, and joined the curtains to one another with the clasps. So the tabernacle was a unit. Then he made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains in all. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits and 4 cubits with the width of each curtain. The 11 curtains had the same measurements. 
he joined five curtains by themselves and the other six curtains by themselves. Moreover, he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was the outermost in the first set, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was the outermost in the second set. He made 50 clasps of bronze to join the tent together so that it would be a unit. He made a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering of porpoise skins above. Then he made the boards for the tabernacle of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits was the length of each board and one and a half cubits the width of each board. There were two tenons for each board fitted to one another. Thus he did for all the boards of the tabernacle. He made the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side, and he made the 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under one board for its two tenons, and two sockets under another board for its two tenons. Then for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, he made 20 boards, and their 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under one board and two sockets under another board. For the rear of the tabernacle to the west, he made six boards. He made two boards for the corners of the tabernacle at the rear. There were double beneath, and together they were complete to its top, the first ring. Thus he did with both of them for the two corners. There were eight boards in their so with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two under every board. Then he made bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the tabernacle for the rear side to the west. He made the middle bar to pass through in the center of the boards from end to end. He overlaid the boards with gold and made their rings of gold as holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. Moreover, he made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine listed, twisted linen. He made it with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. He made four pillars of acacia for it and overlaid them with gold, with their hooks of gold, and he cast four sockets of silver for them. He made a screen for the doorway of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver, and he made its five pillars with their hooks, and he overlaid their tops and their bands with gold, but their five sockets were of bronze. Chapter 37 Now Bezalel made a, the ark of acacia wood. Its length was two and a half cubits, and its width one and a half cubits, and its height one and a half cubits. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and out, and made a gold molding for it all around. He cast four rings of gold for it on its four feet, even two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. He made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. He made a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. He made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub at the one end and one cherub at the other end. He made the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at the two ends. The cherubim had their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces toward each other, the faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. Then he made the table of acacia wood, two cubits long and a cubit wide and one and a half cubits high. He overlaid it with pure gold and made a gold molding for it all around. He made a rim for it of a handbreadth all around, and he made a gold molding for its rim all around. He cast four gold rings for it and put the rings on the four corners that were on its four feet. Close by the rim were the rings, the holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold to carry the table. He made the utensils which were on the table, its dishes and its pans and its bowls and its jars with which to pour out drink offerings of pure gold. Then he made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work, its base and its shaft, its cups, its bulbs and its flowers were of one piece with it. There were six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand from one side of it and three branches of the lampstand from the other side of it. Three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a bulb and a flower in one branch, and three cups shaped like an alm almond blossoms, a bulb and a flower in the other branch. 
So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. In the lampstand, there were four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers, and a bulb was under the first pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it, for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and the branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single hammered work of pure gold. He made it seven lamps with its snuffers and its trays of pure gold. He made it and all its utensils from a talent of pure gold. Then he made the altar of incense of acacia wood, a cubit long and a cubit wide square, and two cubits high. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns, and he made a gold molding for it all around. He made two golden rings for it under its molding, on its two sides, on opposite sides, as holders for poles with which to carry it. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he made the holy anointing oil and the pure, fragrant incense of spices, the work of a perfumer. Chapter 38. Then he made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide, square, and three cubits high. He made its horns on its four corners, its horns being of one piece with it, and he overlaid them with bronze. He made all the utensils of the altar, the pails and the shovels and the basins, the flesh hooks and the fire pans. He made all its utensils of bronze. He made for the altar a grating of bronze network beneath, under its ledge, reaching halfway up. He cast four rings on the four ends of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. He inserted the poles into the rings on the sides of the altar with which to carry it. He made it hollow with planks. Moreover, he made the labor of bronze with its base of bronze from the mirrors of the serving women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Then he made the court for the south side. The hangings of the court were of fine twisted linen, 100 cubits. Their 20 pillars and their 20 sockets made of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were of silver. For the north side, there were 100 cubits. 20, their 20 pillars and their 20 sockets were of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were of silver. For the west side, there were hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were of silver. For the east side, 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate were 15 cubits, with their three pillars and their three sockets, and so for the other side. On both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of 15 cubits, with their three pillars and their three sockets. All the hangings of the court all around were of fine twisted linen. The sockets for the pillars were of bronze, the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver, and the overlaying of their tops of silver, and of all the pillars of the court were furnished with silver bands. The screen of the gate of the court was the work of the, a weaver, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. And the length was 20 cubits, and the height was 5 cubits, corresponding to the hangings of the court. Their four pillars and their four sockets were of bronze. Their hooks were of silver, and the overlaying of their tops and their bands were of silver. All the pegs of the tabernacle of the court all around were of bronze. This is the number of the things for the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were numbered according to the command of Moshe, for the service of the Levites, by the hand of Itamar, the son of Aharon, the priest. Now Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Yehuda, made all that Adonai had commanded Moshe. With him was Aholiav, the son of Ahasimach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and a skillful workman and a weaver, in blue and in purple and in scarlet material and fine linen. All the gold that was used for the work, in all the work of the sanctuary, even the gold of the wave offering, was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver of those of the congregation who were numbered was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. 
a becca ahead, that is, a half shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for each one who passed over to those who were numbered from 20 years old and upward, for 603,550 men. The hundred talents of silver were for casting the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the veil, 100 sockets for the hundred talents and a, a talent for a socket. Of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their tops and made bands for them. The bronze of the wave offering was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the sockets to the doorway of the tent of meeting and the bronze altar and its bronze grating and all the utensils of the altar and the sockets of the court all around and the sockets of the gate of the court and all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs of the court all around. Chapter 39. Moreover, from the blue and purple and scarlet material, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place, as well as the holy garments which were for Aharon, just as Adonai had commanded Moshe. He made the ephod of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. Then they hammered out gold sheets and cut them into threads to be woven in with the blue and purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen, the work of a skillful workman. They made attaching shoulder pieces for the ephod, and it was attached at its two upper ends. The skillfully woven band which was on it was like its workmanship of the same material, of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, just as Adonai had commanded Moshe. They made the onyx stones set in gold filigree settings. They were engraved like the engravings of a signet according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he placed them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as a memorial stones for the sons of Israel, just as Adonai had commanded Moshe. He made the breastpiece, the work of a skillful workman, like the workmanship of the ephod, of gold and blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It was square, and they made the breastpiece folded double, a span long and a span wide when folded double. And they mounted four rows of stones on it. The first row was a row of ruby, topaz, and emerald. The second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. The fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They were set in gold filigree settings when they were mounted. The stones were corresponding to the names of the sons of Israel. There were twelve, corresponding to their names, engraved with the engravings of a signet, each with its name for the twelve tribes. They made on the breastpiece chains like cords of twisted cordage work in pure gold. They made two gold filigree settings and two gold rings, and he put two rings on the two ends of the breastpiece. Then they put the two gold cords and the two rings at the ends of the breastpiece. They put the other two ends of the two cords on the two filigree settings and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front of it. They made two gold rings and placed them on the two ends of the breastpiece on its inner edge, which was next to the ephod. Furthermore, they made two gold rings and placed them on the bottom of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod on the front of it, close to the place where it joined, above the woven band of the ephod. They bound the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord, so that it would be on the woven band of the ephod, and that the breastpiece would not come loose from the ephod, just as Adonai had commanded Moshe. Then he made the robe of the ephod of woven work, all of blue, and the opening of the robe was at the top in its center, as the opening of a coat of mail, with a binding all around its opening so that it would not be torn. They made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet material and twisted linen on the hem of the robe. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around on the hem of the robe, alternating a bell and a pomegranate all around on the hem of the robe for the service, just as Adonai had commanded Moshe. They made the tunics of finely woven linen for Aharon and his sons, and the turban of fine linen, and the decorated caps of fine linen, and the linen breeches of fine twisted linen, and the sash of fine twisted linen, and blue and purple and scarlet material, the work of the weaver, just as Adonai had commanded Moshe. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold, and inscribed it like the engravings of a signet, holy to Adonai. They fastened a blue cord to it, to fasten it on the turban above, just as Adonai had commanded Moshe. 
Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was completed. And the sons of Israel did according to all that Adonai had commanded Moshe, so they did. They brought the tabernacle to Moshe, the tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, its boards, its bars, and its pillars, and its sockets, and the coverings of ram skins dyed red, and the coverings of porpoise skins, and the screening veil, the ark of the testimony, and its poles, and the mercy seat, the table, all its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the pure gold lampstand with its arrangement of lamps, and all its utensils, and the oil for the light, and the gold altar, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the veil for the doorway of the tent, the bronze altar, and its bronze grating, its poles, and all its utensils, the laver, and its stand, the hangings for the court, its pillars and its sockets, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the equipment for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting, the woven garments for ministering in the holy place, and the holy garments for Aharon the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. So the sons of Israel did all the work according to all that Adonai had commanded Moshe. And Moshe examined all the work, and behold, they had done it just as Adonai had commanded. This they had done. So Moshe blessed them. Chapter 40. Then Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall place the ark of the testimony there, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange what belongs on it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and mount its lamps. Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the veil for the doorway of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering in the front of the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall set the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the veil for the gateway of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and shall consecrate it and all its furnishings, and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar, and the altar shall be most holy. You shall anoint the laver and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aharon and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aharon and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister as priest to me. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them and you shall anoint them even as you have anointed their father that they may minister as priest to me and their anointing will qualify them for a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Thus Moshe did. According to all that Adonai had commanded him, so he did. Now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moshe erected the tabernacle and laid its sockets and set up its boards and inserted its bars and erected its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as Adonai had commanded Moshe. Then he took the testimony and put it into the ark and attached the poles to the ark and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up a veil for the screen and screened off the ark of the testimony just as Adonai had commanded Moshe. Then he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. He set the arrangement of bread in order on it before Adonai just as Adonai had commanded Moshe. Then he placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. He lighted the lamps before Adonai just as Adonai had commanded Moshe. Then he placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the veil, and he burned fragrant incense on it, just as Adonai had commanded Moshe. Then he set up the veil for the doorway of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering before the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the meal offering, just as Adonai had commanded Moshe. He placed the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. From it, Moshe and Aharon and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they entered the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar... They washed, just as Adonai commanded Moshe. 
He erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Then Moshe finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Adonai filled the tabernacle. Moshe was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of Adonai filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of Adonai was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel. Thank you for joining us for the reading of the double portion by Ekel Pekodeh. In this parasha, this double portion, we read a lot of details about the construction of the tabernacle. For today's purposes, we're going to focus on chapter 37, because it's in 37 that we see the instructions concerning the, the building of the ark, the building of the table of showbread, the menorah, and the altar of incense. Now, these articles are all articles in the tabernacle, and they all, of course, point toward Yeshua. Uh, in fact, perhaps you've heard of the symbolism that is to be found in the table of showbread, how it points to Yeshua. Yeshua is the bread of life. In fact, he said in John chapter 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, just like the rabbinical uh, tradition of the showbread, they, they say that that bread, that showbread, always remained fresh and hot all week long. Whether or not you believe that, this bread, the bread of Yeshua, is always fresh, constantly renewed, just as he renews us as we partake of him. Perhaps you've also heard of the symbolism of the menorah, how it points to Yeshua. Yeshua is the light of the world. He said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. He went on to say four chapters later in chapter 12, verses 45 through 46, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Now, perhaps you've heard of the symbolism of the altar of incense, how it represents the prayers of the saints going up before Adonai. In the same way that the earthly high priest would take the incense before the presence of Adonai into the most holy place on Yom HaKippurim, Yeshua presents our prayers before Adonai in the heavenly realm. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Yeshua HaMashiach is he who dies, yes, rather who was raised, who's at the right hand of Elohim, who also intercedes for us. Now, we recognize that those articles point to Yeshua and the work that he does on our behalf. But have you considered how Yeshua is symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant? You see, the Ark had on its top a lid. Now, this lid is called the kaparet in Hebrew. Uh, kaparet essentially means atonement. Um, in the English version I was reading from it, it rendered it as mercy seat. And so I, I said mercy seat several times in that reading. Um, and that's where we get our English term for, for the lid is the mercy seat. However... In the Hebrew, it's this, this word, kaparet. That's the same word that we get, uh, we derive the Day of Atonement from, uh, Yom HaKippurim. Now, if you were to take a look in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, this was compiled several centuries before Yeshua walked on earth as a human, in human form. And in that Greek version of the Old Testament, this word kaparet is translated as hilasterion, now, the, this word hilasterion 
is used numerous times in the Septuagint, but it's only used twice in the New Testament, most notably in Romans chapter 3. It says there in Romans chapter 3 in verses 23 through 25, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of Elohim, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Yeshua HaMashiach, whom Elohim displayed publicly as a hilasterion, a propitiation, or we could say an atonement in his blood through faith. In the same way that the sins of the nation of Israel were atoned for when the high priest brought the blood of the goat into the most holy place on Yom HaKippurim, Yeshua provides the same atonement for us through his blood. Yeshua provides our atonement by presenting his blood before Adonai in the heavenly tabernacle. Furthermore, the copperet, the lid of the ark, had two very prominent cherubim, angels, displayed on it. Now, they were at each end facing one another, as the scripture was very clear to tell us. There's a clue that we're given in the gospel accounts that is very easy to overlook that actually mirrors this account of the mercy seat of the atonement lid. It says in John chapter 20 that Mary Magdalene had visited the tomb of Yeshua and discovered that the tomb had been opened and that Yeshua was gone. Of course, we know the story. She went and told the disciples. Two of them came running to the tomb to see for themselves. And then they become uh, amazed and they leave. And it picks up back with Mary in verses 11 and 12 where we read something very, very interesting. It says there, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Yeshua had been lying. Did you catch that? Two angels, one sitting at the head, one sitting at the foot, just like the mercy seat, just like the lid of atonement, facing one another. In the same way, the angels were positioned in the tomb, just as they were on the lid of the ark. Isn't that an amazing coincidence? Um, an amazing piece of information. Now, Adonai desires to meet with his people. The blood of a spotless, perfect goat presented before the ark is the only means by which the children of Israel were cleansed of their sin. Likewise, Messiah, our caporet, our hilasterion, our propitiation, our atonement, the sinless, spotless lamb presents his blood before Adonai by being the very picture of the lid of the ark, the ladder upon which the angels ascend and descend, the connection between us and a holy king. Praise be unto his holy name. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom. Um, our Haftor portion for this week uh, parallels the um, double portion that we had from the Torah. We're coming to the conclusion of the book of Exodus, and of course it's talking about the final assembly of the tabernacle there. And so the parallel portion that goes with that is some of the assembly instructions for Solomon's temple uh, and uh, that was done in Jerusalem. So we're in 1 Kings chapter 7, and even though this is a double portion, both of these Hoftoah portions tie into those double portions. In other words, even if we had it split up uh, with uh, 
uh, one on one week and the next week would still be the same portion. So we're in 1 Kings chapter 7, which is part of the instructions that had to do with how Solomon's temple was completed and uh, built. And in the same way that the Torah portion brings out the attention of Bezalel, this young man who was the artisan, uh, for many of the decorative things that were part of the temple, this portion calls out another young man. Uh, his name is Hiram of, of Tyre, and Solomon uh, asks him to come and to do the great work of the work of working with bronze. Now, the uh, thing that uh, Bezalel did was he dealt with gold and silver and other kinds of fashioning, those things. This particular a uh, young man is going to specifically work on the work of bronze. And what you'll discover in this portion, it's going to focus on two things, uh, the construction of two things that was in Solomon's temple. The first is the pillars, the two large pillars that were just on the porch going into the sanctuary outside the doors. And so when you went up to the temple on the porch, you would see these very large pillars, one on each side of the doors going inside. And the second item is the incredibly large bronze laver uh, that was uh, there that had the water in it that the priests would use to wash their hands and their feet. And so let me take you through this just a little bit. I want to read... Uh, to you a little bit. You're going to hear some very technical descriptions uh, for this, which is likened to the Torah portion where there was a lot of very specific details of the assembly. Uh, and I want you to be um, thinking here for a moment. Ephraim emphasized there's no idle word uh, in the scripture. We're going to hear this very technical discussion of it, and, and I want in the back of your mind, I want to allow yourself to ask the question what's the point? What, what's the real edifying part of this? What is, why, is, why are these words being given to us that we know every word is not an idle word, that every word is to edify our souls? What, what's the greater message? I want that question to linger a little bit in your heart and your mind as we read through this, because in the course of my teaching, that's what I'm hoping to bring out so that we can see why, why do we have the Scripture? Why did God want us to know this information? So 1 Kings chapter 7, beginning at verse 13. It's going to go through uh, verse 39, the rest of the chapter. Let's begin at verse 13, please. Now, King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre, he was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he, filled, he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed all of his work. And he fashioned the two pillars of stone. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar. And a line of 12 cubits uh, measured the circumference of both. He also made two capitals of molten bronze to set on the top of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. 
And there were nets of network and twisted threads of chain work for the capitals, which were on the top of the pillars, seven for the one capital, seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars in two rounds, two rows around on the one network to cover the capitals, which were on the top of the pomegranates, and so he did for the other capital. And the capitals were on the top of the pillars in the porch were of a lily design, four cubits. And there were capitals also on the two pillars, close to the rounded projection, which was beside the network, and the pomegranate numbered 200 in rows around both capitals. Thus he set up the pillars at the porch of the nave, and he set up the right pillar and named it Yakin, and he set up the left pillar and called it Boaz. And on top of the pillars was lily design, so the work of the pillars was finished. Now, before I go further, he's described these two giant pillars. Let me, in uh, maybe in terms a little bit more understandable to us, let me explain what we just read. Because this is kind of technical, you know, as to how, and, and if you go into a detailed study, it reveals a lot of things. But let me give you a jest of what we're talking about. These are bronze-like cylinders and tubes, and they are, uh, the circumference of it is very large. In other words, if a man were to come up to, you couldn't get your arms around them. That's how big these pillars were. And they stood uh, 18 cubits. We actually think it was 17 and a half cubits. We think that number is a rounded off number. And very large, and it went very high in the air. Like, we think these things went like 35 feet in the air. So we're talking about huge. Can't get your arms around it, and it goes way up. And then on top, the, the word used for capitals, it's kind of the crown that's up on top. And essentially, the description here, it, it, let, me, let me give you in slightly different terms. There was like a, a, a ball, a mass of material that that we think actually sat on top of the the cylinder. Some think that it actually inserted into it a little bit and then stood on top. Some say, no, it actually encased and came over the, the lip of it. But in any case, it was a very large thing, and it was basically round in shape. And in the center part around it was the ornate artwork of pomegranates, that there was a whole series of pomegranates shaped art, artistically around it, and then palm fronds of palm branches, leafy palm branches, were on the bottom part of that row of pomegranates and up on the top, and it gave a kind of a fibrous network. Uh, you know, like if I could do my fingers here, the, the, the fronds of the palm, they would made this pattern all around, and there were like seven uh, palm fronds and, and uh, up on the top and down on the bottom. And, and, um, and then on top of the whole thing, there was these leafy, like the leaves and the petals of lilies. And these petals would set up so that what you looked at, you saw this shape that almost appeared, well, you know, and, and I'm allowed me to use this term. It looked like a head, but it had a crown. So it appeared to be crown-like, uh, but it was really the very top of these pillars, a very ornate. And this is all out of bronze. Now, some Bible versions, they'll use the term brass, uh, but we really believe it was bronze. 
that was made here. Um, the bronze is a, a metal that's smelted together that usually includes copper and tin uh, to come together. We know that Solomon had great tin mines uh, down in the southern part of the Negev of Israel is, uh, is a great Solomon's tin mines. And so we think that was some of the substance that was used for it and the copper mines to make all the bronze that had to be done. Now, because of the massive size of this, and because of the work that had to be done, they had to go get somebody who was specialized at doing this. Most bronze things that we find from antiquity are swords or metal attachments or fittings, uh, grates, things where fire can come up against and it's not going to distort the metal uh, because, it, you know, the, if you recall the, ta- the altar uh, that was portable in the tabernacle of the wilderness, it was made of bronze. It was called the bronze altar. And they would make it out of that metal to where it was very heat resistant uh, and they would use it to burn fire on it. Well, they were using the same kind of metal. And the, this was very thick. And by the way, if you know anything about bronze, it's a very heavy metal when it comes together. Uh, and this, these objects were extremely, extremely heavy. In fact, the scripture goes into in the commentary on this is, is that there's no attempt, uh, as in other uh, things that were created for the tabernacle and for the tem- temple, there's no attempt to account for the amount of the stuff that was used here. In other words, how much bronze was present. There's no effort to do it. In fact, uh, one of the great mysteries here uh, about this, and I guess it goes hand in hand with the great stones of the temple itself, is these things had to be created in one location and then had to be transported and then set up to be in the temple. And the the smelting and the the molding and the pouring of the these items to make these items must have been an incredible technical undertaking and uh, uh, and then being transported the great weight of these things being transported down to Jerusalem uh, so that they could be set into the temple and it begs a lot of questions about how in the world technically did they just do some of this stuff uh, to do it, but the fa- it doesn't explain how it's done. It just says this is what was done, and the amount and weight of these things in those times, even they couldn't calculate the weight. Uh, they couldn't determine how much was actually involved in the process. But this young man, uh, he's charged with that duty uh, to do that. Now, the only thing that gives us any kind of hint. And any kind of aid into why, why were these things done? And by the way, this is a distinctly different thing that was done from the tabernacle. If you'll recall in the tabernacle, the, the basic sanctuary was a tent. And they had the, uh, the timbers, the acacia timbers, they're covered in gold. And it formed the structure. And then the tent is laid over the top. The, this is completely different from all the stone, the doors, the, the structure of the sanctuary. These are set in front of the temple, either side of the door. These are completely separate things created that were affixed there in the permanent temple in Jerusalem. So it has a little bit of a unique character, and, but they're given names. And it sounds like the names of people. 
actually, they're not necessarily the names of people. They sound like the names of people, but they're actually words that have great meaning. Uh, for example, Yakin, if you walked in and the, the first one that you'd see on the right hand, this one pillar, it has a specific name. Yakin. What does Yakin mean? It means established in strength. The second one, Boaz, is actually two, two words put together in the Hebrew, and it means in it is strength. Established in strength, in it is strength. So the theme of strength is what this is about. There is a special message about strength that is confronts you as you come to the doors of the permanent sanctuary. So the question is, well, what what does that mean? I mean, how, what, what is God doing here? Why, why do we have this in the temple? Let's step back for just a moment. We'll come back to our portion here in just a little bit. Let's step back. Strength is a very important spiritual concept uh, in our spiritual lives. It, there is the, the opposite of strength, of course, is weakness. One of the things that we learn, spiritual laws that we learn uh, from the Lord, is that uh, weakness is that which leads to death. Strength is that which leads to life. So we're talking about some, of some core value things here that are taking place. And that uh, what we, when we come before the Lord, uh, that we want to maximize the strength of the Lord and our lives, that one of the great spiritual lessons that we're taught when you're discipled and you mature in the Lord is if you try to walk this life out, if you try to live your life in your strength, you will not prevail. You'll get going, and then you're going to find out that all of a sudden your strength leaves you, and then you're left with weakness, and it doesn't work out for you. A, a, a runner... You know, he has a certain amount of strength to run. Now, he goes out and he uses that strength and he runs, 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 runs. And then finally he runs out of his strength and he becomes weak and he has to slow down and to the point where if he, he keeps persisting, he can't run anymore. And uh, one of the great spiritual lessons that we learn is that if you're going to live this life that God has given to you, you cannot do it in your strength. You must do it in God's strength, that God is the one who empowers you to. And in fact, our faith is to be based in the power of God, the strength of God, not in our strength, not in our power. And for those of you who, uh, you know, I have experienced this. I'm sure others have a similar testimony. There have been moments in my life where I pursued a particular thing. And um, that I chose to kind of do it on my own. I chose my own will. I, I, I didn't, I, in fact, I'll tell you in one case, it was, uh, I really didn't want the Lord's help. I, I wanted to do it. And I learned, um, to my chagrin, that my strength wasn't enough. It just didn't get the job done. And I was faced with the fact that I, I was unable 
to to complete what it is that I really had hoped for. The fact that I had hoped for it, the fact that it was a good idea, it, it still wasn't sufficient. It it it, it didn't it didn't um, complete the task correctly. But I have learned many other times in my life that if I pursue a particular thing relying on the strength of the Lord, there's great success. And even though I'm kind of weak, uh, it, we, still, uh, we still accomplish things because I did it in the strength of the Lord. I will share a personal uh, confession with you, personal testimony, that every day that I get up to do the work of this ministry, I ask God to strengthen me to do it. Um, that is the reason why I've been able to keep going. Um, when you first start out as a task and you're a young guy, well, you've got a lot of energy, you've got a lot of strength and so forth. But, but uh, quickly I learned that if I'm going to continue to be steadfast and faithful from day to day, month to month, year to year, I have to do it in the strength of the Lord. So every day to come in and do the ministry, I say, Lord, I'm not able to do this except by your strength. Give me the strength to do the work you want me to do. Uh, for you. And that's how he's able to maintain my attention, my energy, keep me empowered, keep me not be fatigued, not, uh, you know, run out of patience for things. I continue to persist. I continue to hang in there. I continue to be steadfast because I'm doing it in the strength of the Lord, not my strength. If you'll recall John the Baptist in his ministry, he specifically addressed the fact, I need to be made weaker so he may be made stronger. And for those of you who've had that spiritual lesson in your life, you know that to live the life of the faith, your person, who you are, needs to diminish so that the, the space of who you are is occupied by the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God then uh, is what empowers your life to, to live. So these two pillars, as you walk up to the temple, which are pronounced, you see them immediately. Guess what the message is? That same message that is this base message of how to live the life. In this sanctuary, it is established in the strength of God. In this sanctuary is strength. You will find strength. You will get the strength of God by coming to this place and being a part of what God is doing. That is the overpowering message that is coming across. And to symbolize that, to to command your attention, to get you to focus on this very important uh, personal concept of walking out uh, the life and the faith in God, you are confronted by, and, and your first impression is the immensity and the strength of these bronze pillars. I mean, they're compelling. If you'd have been there uh, and walked up to them, it's like you'd want to touch them. And the, the moment you touch them, I said, this thing isn't going to move. And how did they get this here? And, and the strength that was required to put these things here. And the strength it would be take to take them out. In fact, Jeremiah, in his accounting of the destruction of the temple by Babylon, spends quite a bit of time talking about what it took 
for the Babylonians to destroy those two pillars. That it was an intense, massive effort to bring those down in the destruction of Solomon's temple by the Babylonians. And again, it's the picture of this great strength uh, for it. For you and I, um, it's a reminder of this basic spiritual lesson I'm sure that many of you have been taught uh, about that uh, for us to live our life from the mortal part of us to the emotional part to the spiritual part, we do so successfully in the strength of the Lord. Uh, because we don't have sufficient strength within us to accomplish those things. Our, our strength will give out, and so we need the strength of the Lord. We need the power of the Lord. Uh, here's, a, here's another example of living Torah uh, for me. As I shared with you last week about the news of my wife, this week we are, uh, Lynn and I are being confronted with the, the, the nature of this disease, the nature of what she's having to go through, uh, she can sense it, I can sense it uh, dramatically. This disease, this, this trouble that we have, it's trying to produce weakness. It's trying to take the strength away. And in, in the case of her mortal physical body, it's diminishing her ability to breathe correctly, and to get the necessary oxygen and, tra and transference so that she has the strength to do things. She finds herself increasingly becoming weak. She needs to rest more. Uh, it, it, she easily can fatigue uh, in doing a task. And, so, and that's the nature of the disease is to make you weak. But here's, the, here's the, the wonderful spiritual lesson in this. That's just the mortal body. Since we weren't operating on our strength and we're operating on the strength of the Lord, then we're going to rely on His strength. And even though we recognize it's the physical, mortal body, His strength is able to empower and do things that our strength can't do. So the living Torah lesson for, for Lynn and I this week on this Torah portion is the Lord's given us a very powerful testimony, twofold testimony that... There's strength in him, and he's established in strength. And that's what we need. We need his strength to be able to live, to maintain, and to continue on. And so that's part of the prayer that I have been praying every day since I've been in the ministry. And it's the same prayer right now that Lynn and I are praying, that the God would strengthen her each day so that each day... Uh, she operates in the strength of the Lord, not in her strength, uh, which the disease is trying to take away uh, from her. So this is the first segment of our portion that talks about these two pillars. Now I'm going to shift gears. Let's look at the second item that was in the temple in Jerusalem, in Solomon's temple, which was the laver. So uh, let us now turn to verse 23 of 1 Kings 7. Now he made the sea of cast metal, ten cubits from the brim to brim, circular in form, and its height was five cubits and thirty cubits in circumference. Now, it's a laver, but it's so large, they called it the Sea of Solomon. I mean, this thing was huge. It was like your own portable swimming pool. And in fact, what we'll learn here is, not only was it large enough, 
for a multitude of priests to come up and wash their hands and their feet. This is where the priest used to do their mikvah and be immersed. It was large enough that it was used for immersion purposes by the priest. And there's a large amount of volume of water that was in this and as part of this. A very large volume of water. So it's what you're getting ready to find out is they built a bronze, mobile um, swimming pool, in effect. That was, that was moved in here. Let me go on with some of the further discussion about it. Um, verse 25. It stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. And the sea was set on top of it, and all their rear parts turned inward. So this thing is so big, they made life-size-looking oxen. Three facing to the north, side by side. Three life-size oxen in bronze. Three more to the right, facing at a different compass point, and to where all four compass points are done. And, it, and this basin of this labor sits on 12 oxen. So you can imagine, this thing was massive. Uh, you got life-size bulls uh, with a basin sitting on top. So, you know, this is huge. And this would have commanded your attention. When you walked into the temple, you would have gone, oh, my goodness, this is, this is immense. This is incredible. Um, going hand in hand with the two pillars, the altar before it, the whole size and scale of the sanctuary and so forth. These were mighty and impressive things. This was Solomon's temple. He goes on further to say... Verse 26, and it was a handbreadth thick. A handbreadth. The breadth of a hand. It's that thick. The metal is that thick. And the whole thing is that thick. A whole handbreadth. It's immense. Verse 27, then he made ten stands of bronze, and a length of each stand was four cubits, and its width was four cubits, and its height was three cubits. And it was, and this was the design of the stands. They had borders, even borders between the flames, and on the borders that were between the frames, uh, frames rather, were lions, oxen, cherubim, and on frames there was pedestal above and beneath the lions and the oxen were wreaths of hanging work now each stand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles and its four feet had supports and beneath the basin were cast supports with wreaths on each side and its opening inside of the crown of the top was a cubit and its opening was round like the design of a pedestal a cubit and a half and also in its openings were engravings and their borders were square and not round and the four wheels were underneath the borders and the axles of the wheels were on the stand and the height of the wheel was a cubit and a half and the workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axles, their rims, their spokes, their hubs were all cast. Now these were the four supports of the four corners of each stand, and its supports are part, were part of the stand itself. 
and on top of the stand where the circular form half a cubit and on the top of the stand it stays and its borders were and engraved on the plates of its stays and on the borders cherub and lions and palm trees according to the clear space on each with wreaths all the way around and he made ten stands like this this all had one casting one measure and one form and he made ten basins of bronze one basin held forty baths each basin was four cubits and on each of the ten stands were one brazen then he set the stands five on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house and he set on the sea of the cast of metal on the right side of the house eastward toward the south all right a lot of technical discussion let me summarize let me see if i can simplify for it so you have in your mind's eye there's this very large labor mini swimming pool sitting on 12 life-size created oxen. Those are all sitting on a large box, a box that holds the oxen and the labor. And this box is supported to where that along the sides of it, it has the imagery of cherubim, angels. It has the image of a lion, and and uh, the, the fronds of uh, the leafy things and uh, what was the other thing that it had there the um, I want palm trees yes the palm fronds and so forth so it's decorative there's a box that everything sits on there's a base and then that base also has affixed to it axles and wheels so imagine this very large labor okay then imagine these 12 oxen created and and the basin is affixed to them sitting on their backs and then the 12 oxen with all their hooves they're standing on a box that's been created that has to obviously be a, a even stronger box than all the other stuff above it because it's going to support it and that box gives the structural integrity for this entire thing to become a unit so that we can affix axles and wheels to it and these had to have been massive wheels and this is called the sea of solomon and this is the labor that is now in the temple the last part is there was something else that went with it that he created 10 specific standalone uh, smaller baths all right now uh, as i said to you before the giant laver could be used for immersion but if you imagine the size of this how do you walk up here and wash your hands if you're a priest how, how do you walk up and do this you could do immersion a special immersion in it and so he created 10 then smaller lavers uh, round and about and so when the priests would come up they would actually go to these smaller 10 units that was associated with it and many um, scholars believe that there was a kind of a plumbing that was attached to this so that water flowed in and flowed out, and so it was living waters in these all the time. That it wasn't just a basin of water, that was, there were water flowing into it, water flowing out of it, um, and um, that there was, the, the waters were always remaining fresh and clean. 
uh, in these things as they would wash and, and uh, do the things that they would do. And that these ten uh, units down here, the bronze and so forth, were used for keeping everything clean in the temple itself. It's from this that they think that some of these lavers actually was the collection, the temporary collection point for the ashes off of the altar. That some was for the washing and cleansing. Some of them were used for when um, they would do a sacrifice and they needed to just quickly wash some of the parts. In other words, this was a series of wash basins. And when it says that it had four baths in the, each one of these, a bath is constituted as the amount of water that you need for a full immersion. How much water would you need to immerse? So each bath is constituted as a large number of gallons of water, and each one of these ten basins had four baths in them. So you could uh, do, it, it held a lot of volume. It held water. It could, uh, you know, be a working element of keeping the temple area clean, uh, helping with the pre preparation of sacrifices, the washing of the entrails before they were put up, onto the altar, the washing of the priest's hands and feet. You do realize, of course, that when the priests are doing the duty of, of preparing sacrifices, they need to wash their hands and their feet frequently. These basins were set up to set that up. It kind of reminds me, for those of you who have been to Sukkot before, one of the things that we do for the people who come to eat the feast is uh, we don't supply... Um, uh, paper plates and, and uh, so forth for everybody. We, we tell everybody, you bring your own cup, you bring your own bowl, you bring your own silverware uh, for it. Well, they need a place to wash their things afterwards. And so we set up basins, very large wash tubs, uh, outside of the dining tent and where they can take their dishes over and immediately uh, get rid of the garbage off them, immediately wash them, rinse them, and sanitize them. And so we set up a series of basins uh, for them to do it. And in the same sort of way, that's kind of what was going on here. It wasn't just one big laver. There was a series of ten basins that were set up that would aid with all of the functions that were going on in that. Now, again, so this portion, um, what, what is it really telling us? That the temple service, the operation of the temple, was a very large thing that it was, a, it was set up in a corporate way so that the priest could come in and do the work of helping any of us uh, that we came to worship the Lord, that, that we had literally all of the uh, uh, functions supported for people to present their gifts to the Lord, to worship the Lord, and to complete all of the tasks of the worship in the temple. And looking at this, you know, me coming from the background of being a engineer, uh, a logistics engineer, I'm intrigued by the process, not only of the construction of all of the things, but the process of how we would, uh, all of the people would come and worship the Lord. And uh, it's one of the exciting things that I get to do in setting up the, the conferences and the appointed times for people to come, because what do we work on? You know, to tell you the truth, I spend most of my time working on, well, what's going to be the process? How do we get the people through? How can we make sure their needs are met? Uh, how, how, in other words, what are all the steps 
that everybody's that we need to have everybody do so that they can have a successful worship time and come for the services and things like that. And there's a tremendous amount of work that is done in the background by a big team of people uh, to make this happen. Well, as you look at the temple, there were many tasks for the priests. There were many tasks for those who came and helped serve the temple and the construction of these elements so that they could minister to all of the people. And it's part of the work of the Lord. It's not just that you decide in your heart, okay, I'm going to go serve the Lord. No, there's work to be done. And, and so we encourage and we teach and we train people that because it's a work of the Lord, don't come here with your ego and don't come here with your ideas of thinking that you know how to do all this stuff because I guarantee you, you don't. It is the Lord's who does it. And oh, by the way, for you to be successful and accomplish this, you must do it in the strength of the Lord, not your own strength. If you come and you're in your enthusiasm and your zeal, do it in your own strength, you, you will falter. You will fail. Um, the real path here, the real lesson is that it's a great work, but we need to do it in the strength of the Lord. Amen? So that's our portion for this week as we conclude the construction of the tabernacle and the construction of the temple. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Sabbath. Thank you, Lord, for the teaching of the construction of your house. And, Lord, show us um, the work, uh, you know, before us, uh, for us to walk out our faith before you. And, Lord, we confess to you we have no strength to do the things that need to be done. Um, Our strength comes from you, Lord. And so we ask you this day, At the beginning of the Sabbath, Lord, would you strengthen us and strengthen all of your people, Lord. Teach us how to operate in your power, not in our power, not in our strength. And uh, this week, Lord, as we have this Sabbath, I pray, Lord, that you would grant strength to my wife uh, for her to be strong um, and not weak uh, from all of the things that are happening in our life. We pray all of this in the name of Yeshua Messiah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would please now turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. Hold your finger at chapter 9 where our Bread Hadashah portion will begin for this week. And as you're opening the scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again, that we can dig into your word and your instruction. Father, I pray that this time of teaching would be encouraging and edifying to the brethren. As your word comes alive each and every week, Father, we thank you for the uh, time and the opportunity that we live in to where we can have your word and your instruction before us here in our hands, that it is very near to us and that it can speak to us and minister to us. So, Father, I pray. For the people that might hear this teaching, I pray that they be encouraged, Lord. Heal them in any uh, areas of healing that they need. And I lift them up on this Sabbath day to, uh, for, uh, Father, for you to pour out a blessing upon them. We love you, bless you, and thank you. In Yeshua's name, amen. So our Torah portion this week is Vayachel and Pakude. It's a double portion, and it closes out the book of Exodus there in the Torah cycle. <coughs> Excuse me. This is one of those portions that is extremely repetitive. There is a great amount of information 
that we have actually already covered, that we've already received. We're, we're going to go over all the details of the building and the construction of the tabernacle that was shown to Moses on Mount Sinai. Our previous portions in Exodus had Moses seeing and receiving the word from the Lord to build these things. Now here at the end of the book of Exodus, the children of Israel actually are literally physically completing the construction and the service of the tabernacle and the building of these things. And so we can see that there's a great amount of repetition to some of the things that we've already covered. However, there's always a little bit, a couple of little nuggets that I want to pull out that are unique to this Torah portion. And of course, opening up passages in the New Testament, I hope that I can bring out some of those other special nuggets that maybe we didn't have time to get to in previous portions, but then also are very special to this week as we close out this book of Exodus. We're beginning in chapter uh, 9 of 2 Corinthians, talking about the giving of gifts, because that's what happens at the beginning of this portion. Literally, the children of Israel are, are told by Moses, God already said this to Moses, now Moses is gathering the people together, assembling them together to give them the instruction to make that tarumah, that offering, for the construction of the tabernacle. And in their hearts, they had to be stirred in their hearts to give that gift, to have the desire to, to give the gift to the Lord for the construction of the tabernacle. They had to have a certain spirit inside of them. So here we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians 9, in which uh, the Apostle Paul is, is teaching us about giving, about the heart of a person who is to give to the Lord. So let's read this passage. We're going to read the entire chapter, all um, 15 verses of 2 Corinthians 9. And you'll start to see the parallel, of course, to the attitude of those that were to give to the construction of the tabernacle. Now concerning the ministry, ministering uh, to the saints, it is superfluous to me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast to you to the Macedonians, that Archaea was ready a year ago, for your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this request, that as I said to you, you may be ready." Lest if some of the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work, as it is written. He is dispersed abroad, and he is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberally, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While, while through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God 
for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and at, and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This entire idea of giving a gift <clears throat> is an act that draws people together, that causes people to have a relationship with one another. You can actually think about like you might have a friend or an acquaintance that you might have. And that person, you might say, hey, that's my friend. But you might ask yourself, has that person ever given you a gift? Maybe your birthday rolled around, Hanukkah rolled around. Did they ever turn, buy you something and give you a gift? And, and you might say, well, no, that person had, eh, they've never given me a gift. Have you ever given them a gift? Well, no, we, we, your relationship is not on that level. This is all a part of the covenant building that God does with and is doing in our, in our Torah portion story of building the covenant between God and Israel. The giving of gifts is an aspect of covenant. It's an act of covenant that it builds relationships. So that as a precursor to the whole idea of, well, you know, what is this purpose of, of giving a gift? And not only is it about giving a gift, but it's having the right heart and the right spirit inside of you in the process of giving a gift. You might think that, um, you know, maybe somebody's given you a gift before, but you know what? The gift didn't really have much value to it. And now, we're, of course, as we move into the book of Leviticus, and perhaps this is kind of a primer for the book of Leviticus, in the whole idea of the giving of offerings to God, the sacrifice of what it is, is you are to give of yourself a sacrifice to God, and that that gift needs to have value to it. It needs to have substance to it. And you need to not just do it out of obligation. Oh, well, I, I, I probably should give this, uh, give that person a gift, you know, it's, it's, it's their birthday. And so I feel obligated that I need to give them a gift. Is that the right attitude to have with giving a gift? You might go through the motions, but spiritually there's nothing being achieved in the giving of that gift. You still begrudgingly are acquainted with this person, but you're not allowing in your heart, in your attitude, in your emotion to boost and to grow the relationship that you have with that person. You're not building, you might give them a gift, but you're not building the friendship because in your heart, you're not doing it out of the goodness, out of graciousness, out of the desire to, 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 to uh, uh, bless somebody. That's the problem is that you can give a gift, but it might mean nothing. And the person, they might sense that. You can give that gift, but then they're like, uh, they're like oh, they, they open your gift. They unwrap it and they say, oh, thank you so much. But then they look over at you, thank you. And you're like, oh, yeah, you know, enjoy. And they're like, did that person really, did they care about the gift? Did they really put, it's very clear, they don't show any effort to it. And again, it's not just about giving the gift, but it's having the right spirit in your heart in the course of giving the gift. Just like I said, God loves a cheerful giver. Cheerful. I love, let, their, let the emotion be behind it. It's not just about the physical act of taking what you have and giving it to the Lord or giving it to somebody. God sees our hearts. That's the thing about giving a gift to God. You might be able to pull the wool over somebody's eyes and, and give a gift and you don't really care about them, but they think that you care about them. Now, that's, that, that's almost a whole other problem, whole other issue. Uh, is that, you know, that you're kind of stringing somebody along, making them think that you like them 
when in truth of fact you don't. That's a, that's a whole other, uh, you know, that might borderline on false testimony that you're showing that you care, but you really don't. So, I mean, that, that, that's a whole other thing. You might be able to pull the wool over someone's eyes, uh, you know, uh, uh, another human being. <clears throat> but when it comes to God, he sees your heart and he knows whether that gift truly came from your heart with a desire for you to be in covenant with God. There's plenty of people sitting in pews on Sunday morning or any other congregation. And if they pass the plate or maybe there's an offering box uh, there somewhere in the congregation and you might feel like, oh, man, it's like kind of this obligation when the plate comes by, you know, I better oh, everybody better hope and see that I put something in the plate. So you reach into your pocket and you pull out, you know, whatever you got. And maybe it is a lot of money. Maybe the only thing you have in your wallet is is hundred dollar bills. And so, you know, they got to see something. So you go ahead and take the hundred dollar bill. You put it in there. And so that maybe everybody saw that you did. But does the Lord see your heart? Was your heart really in the idea to give that to money to the common storehouse or to the ministry or the congregation that you're donating to? Understanding that it's a gift to the Lord. The Lord sees your heart. <laughs> you know, you, I mean, honestly, if that's why you give, you know, you, you got to sit there and question. It's all like, well, well, well why are you, are you giving it? That's almost a, a responsibility for even us in the ministry that if somebody is giving a gift, but they really aren't passionate about the gift of giving it to the Lord, then integrity within ministry needs to teach that person and say, no, you've got to fix your relationship with the Lord. It's all like, if you're talking about giving me the money, the, the, the highest level of integrity would say, no, you keep the money until you're right with the Lord and ready to give it. Of course, other people see the $100 bill and just be like, oh, well, we'll just, just go ahead and make the donation or whatever, and, 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 and we'll, we'll know it's to the Lord. No, there's a, there's a level of integrity that those of us that work in ministry, really, if we're being honest with ourselves and doing the work of God graciously and rightly and appropriately, we understand that that gift has to be done from the heart of a person, in the spirit of the person. I want, I want you to donate to this ministry if you're blessed by this ministry, not just because it feels like an obligation. That's the highest level of integrity that I can do walking out and doing the service of ministry. And such is the case in the service of God in the course of the tabernacle or any other aspect or any other way that you can give to the Lord because you love the Lord, because of the covenant relationship that you have with the Lord. It's all about what is in the spirit of the person. If God has supplied your need, that's the way that's the other thing that the passage talked about is that God has supplied seed to the sower and bread for food and that he has given you sufficiency in all things so that you have an abundance to do good work out of the out of the blessing of the abundance. And because God has met your needs, God has given you that gift. It's then our responsibility being in covenant with God to reciprocate the gift. That's the way it is. Gift, gift giving is a two way street, as I asked you before. If you have a friend that you've given a gift, but they've never given to you, is that a two-way relationship? Is that, you know, I mean, is that person agreed to this certain level of covenant that's now grown between you, that's, uh, that's grown to the level of giving gifts to one another? Or is it a one-way street and you're trying to, give, to, to, to build the relationship, but they're not responding? Ultimately, that's what God is doing. It's, God has already done the work by meeting our needs. The, the, the indescribable gift that God has given to us in the very end of the very last verse of this passage 
of the, the salvation from sin, the death of, the, of God's firstborn son to be the sacrifice and to be the savior of the world so that we might have eternal life. And maybe even people that don't, don't believe in Yeshua, we're talking about maybe like the Jewish people, they still have the understanding that it's the breath of God that has breathed life in. God has given us the gift of life. Or is that going to be a one-way street? Is that going to be, is that relationship one-sided, that God loves his creation and that we aren't going to give honor and respect to the God who has given us life, the gift of life? You can't describe, you can't quantify what the gift of life is. But we should, with all of our heart, turn and give thanks back to the Lord. This is the nature of those that gave to the offering and the donation to the creation of the tabernacle. They were stirred in their spirit to give to the tabernacle. I always love pointing out back in our Torah portion where it says that it was the women that gave, that also brought gifts as well. And in fact, the, the literal Hebrew says that it was the men with the women who brought the gifts. It was a stirring in the hearts of the women to give before the men. Because this is one of the fundamental nature differences between men and women is that women tend to be more spiritually in tune. That when God is wanting a stir of the spirit, sometimes it's women that respond more quickly to moves of the spirit. This is also one of the reasons, back to this whole concept of gift giving, it's usually somebody more spiritually in tune that has this idea of, I should give that person a gift. When somebody is hurting and, 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 and grieving, it's, it's somebody who's, who the spirit is stirred in them to say, I need to give them some flowers to comfort them and to aid them. And so it's, it's a tendency of those that are more spiritually attuned to the Lord and, to, and the feelings and the emotions and the thoughts of another person that would have that stirring in their spirit to do something good for that person. This is again, it's, this is the spirit of giving and what it is. It stirs up inside of us. The desire to give a gift starts inside from the beginning. It's not about what you have on the outside, but it's like, no, if you have a heart to, to, to do it, then ultimately what ends up being the gift honestly doesn't matter as much. Because if you're cheerful in the process of giving, sometimes even the most smallest, insignificant and, and, and trinkets that have no value sometimes can have the most meaningful be the most meaningful of gifts to another person. Just the thoughtfulness of it. That's why sometimes giving just a card is sufficient to let somebody know that your heart is to cheer them up and to encourage them. In our Torah portion also, <clears throat> we have the um, we have the listing again, once again, of the artisans of the tabernacle. The uh, Betzalel, Aholiav, filled with the Spirit of God, to construct and to create the tabernacle. They're first mentioned in last week's Torah portion, but we didn't have time to really talk about them. So I want to mention them here in this Torah portion where the, the most fascinating thing about these men is that they were, it's, that it's the testimony of the scripture that they were filled with the spirit of God. This is a, a honor that is actually only reserved for very few people in all of scripture. Now, we, of course, know that the prophets were inspired and they were heard God. But there is actually very few times in Scripture where it literally says that a certain person was filled with the Spirit of God. We're talking about God's thoughts, God's emotions, and truly walking out 
the Holy Spirit. And, and you have set themselves aside and are then operating in the Spirit of God. That's actually, it's one of the testimonies of Yeshua. If you go to uh, Luke chapter 1, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, not, not Yeshua. In Luke chapter 1, there is the instruction and the story of the birth of John, John the Baptist, prior to Yeshua. And so here we have, uh, last week I talked about how Yeshua did talk about how he was filled with the Spirit of God when he read from the passage of Isaiah. But here in Luke, we actually have this attribution given to John the Baptist that the angel, speaking to John's mother before he was born, is saying that he would be filled with the Spirit. Let me read this story here. And you can start to see that this is still a pattern in an, of, of certain men of Scripture that are filled with the Spirit, and then what they're able to do in their life after they've been filled with the Spirit. Let's read Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abiah. His wife was the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were born, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he was in, when he went into the temple of the Lord and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the house at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and to bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now, after those days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus, the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take uh, to take away my reproach among people. This is the story and the account of the angel speaking to uh, John's parents in the birth of him. Now, there's, we can immediately draw parallels to perhaps when the Lord appeared in three people to Abraham. 
and spoke to him and said, at the time of life, you will have a son. And of course, Abraham said, we're advanced in years. And she and Sarah was barren. And then she laughed. Sarah laughed when she heard heard of this. And so there, there's a direct parallel here. That's the, what has happened to the fathers will happen to the descendants. And there's a there's obvious an obvious parallel there. But the thing that I want to point out, of course, is this idea that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist. This is the man that was he was the first to declare Yeshua to be the Lamb of God. He was the first to see Yeshua. And immediately upon seeing Yeshua, he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He knew instantly. How could how can a man do that? How can that declaration take place? And immediately after he did that, suddenly men immediately started to believe him to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And there's some reasons why that, that we believe that as a priest, as a descendant of the priest, he declared the appropriate sacrifice. And so there's there's an appropriate um, structure of the, a priest declaring a sacrifice to be appropriate. So there's the proper um, protocol in the course of declaring a, a sacrifice to be right and appropriate. But what he saw, what did John see? If you put yourself in John's head behind his eyes, and what did John see? He must have seen something in Yeshua, that, that, a, a glow, an aura, something, something heavenly that would have led him to make such a declaration. Excuse me. And this is what I believe the Holy Spirit can do. He can, when filled with the Holy Spirit, you begin to see things that are divine, that are supernatural, that, that are that are beyond your normal sight. But you'll see the way something or see somebody the way God sees them. Because what God can see in all of us is he can see his own divine nature in all of creation. He there there has to there's a. There's a supernatural spiritual glow that is inside each and every one of us. If our, us in, as a part of creation were created from God, that there is this power beyond the physical of what we can see. And when filled with the Spirit of God, we get to see the way God sees something. I believe John saw the Messiah in a way that, that was not like any other man. He saw the heavenly nature of God and the heavenly nature of the Messiah. So how does this tie back to our Torah portion here? Because it's like I said, the spirit of God was filled inside these men, the artisans that created these things. What were they building? What were they creating? This Ark of the Covenant, this table of showbread, this menorah. Where did they get the idea and the pattern of how those things should look? Moses, yeah, Moses described them. It was written down and described the size and the width and the shape and all those things. Well, how did Moses see it? He was shown it in a vision on the mountain. He was shown the pattern of heavenly things that was then to be created here on earth. So then put your eyes, so put your, now put yourself in the eyes and the head of Bezalel, the artisan of the tabernacle. When he saw the gold and saw the, and was told this is the shape that it was to be, I believe he was given the sight and the, 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 the sight of God to know exactly what it was supposed to look like. Because he too saw that same divine heavenly vision of what was in the temple in heaven that was then to be crafted and created of gold here on earth. And that's what it was to have the Spirit of God inside of them. 
This is, this is sort of the thing that, like I said, that this uh, testimony is reserved for only a few people. This is why it's so fascinating when you go to Acts chapter 2, talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That once the people, had the, the Holy Spirit fell, they began speaking in tongues and, 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 and all these things. And it, the sound came from heaven, a rushing mighty wind. Suddenly, heavenly things happen when the Spirit of God comes and inhabits people. We see things in the spiritual when the spirit is unfilled. That's why John could see the Messiah and know the divine nature of the Messiah himself walking on the earth. He probably saw a glow around him or some sort of, some kind of spotlight to know instantly that there was something heavenly that he was looking at. Bezalel, when, when molding the, t- the, the menorah or the table and the ark, that after it sort of came to shape, that there was like a glow to it because he could see the heavenly divine nature of it. And then that's what the people could then see and hear at the day of Pentecost when the Spirit filled them and they could see, they could sense the heavenly nature of things. It also says in Acts chapter 7, Stephen the martyr, right before they killed him, right before they killed him, in verse 55 of Acts chapter 7, he said after Stephen had given his entire testimony here, he and being filled of the whole, filled full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Yeshua standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And then that's when they stoned him after they uh, he, he had given his whole testimony. And there at the very end, the last minute of his life, Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit and could suddenly see this, this heavenly divine vision. This is the pattern throughout Scripture of what it is when somebody is filled with the Spirit of God. They can, have, they can see and they can sense things of the, in the heavenly realm. And in our building of the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, that is what was being constructed. A pattern and a shadow of what was divine created here on earth. Now, in our Torah portion for this week, <clears throat> it's a double portion, Vayakel and Pakude. And the second portion of, of our story, Pakude, means giving an account. And what happens in our story is after all the gifts are, are given to um, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the textiles, the various animal skins that were needed to be given, they then gave an account of what was there. They took account of what was given and how much we needed and what and everything that was being being built. So what I now want to do is take us to Romans chapter 14, where we have the passage of um, Paul speaking to the Romans, talking about those of us that have to give an account of everything that we do in our own lives. If we go to Romans 14, beginning at verse 7, it says this, for none of us lives to himself. And no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whenever we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, 
not to put a stumbling block or cause or, or a cause to fall in our brother's way. This goes to back to this idea of the gift giving and what everybody brought to the construction of the tabernacle. I may have mis- misspoke previously when I talked about how some people brought some gold and that there was also somebody that maybe desired to give a gift, but then they, they didn't give, give anything. That's actually an inaccurate statement if I've, if I've said that in a previous teaching. Because there is one thing that everybody had to give that gave an account of who they are. And this, of course, was the half shekel. This was a commandment that was given. This actually was the one part of the gifts that were given to the tabernacle that was commanded for everybody to give something. Now, the majority of things, all the gold, all the bronze, um, all of the other materials that built the tabernacle, that was stirred in the hearts of the people to give that gift. But everybody was commanded to give an account that they were to give a half shekel so that they might be counted. In fact, this is how they counted all the sons and the children of Israel. By everybody gave a half shekel, you counted up the shekels, then we knew how much, how many people there were, that there were. <coughs> Excuse me. And those shekels went into the creation of the, the sockets and the base of the tabernacle, almost like the foundation of the holy place was made by those shekels that were given and donated by the people and by the children of Israel. So that all of Israel built the foundation of the house of God. There's some spiritual principles, of course, to that statement. And that each one gave that. Now, what we should always do is each person has to give an account. And that's obviously how they were counted in that time, at that time in the Exodus, to know how many people were there a part of, uh, a part of Israel. But like I said, there were those that also gave more. Those that gave the gold, the women that gave their mirrors, and that was all that made up from bronze that turned into the bronze laver, and all of the all of the other parts that were given. Was anybody of the congregation ever supposed to turn to the other neighbor and say, "Well, you did, you only gave that half shekel. Weren't you going to give more?" And one thing we we should never, in the course of having the right attitude of giving, is to ever think that giving is a chance for us to boast about how much we can give, while our brother couldn't give as much. And for whatever reason, he couldn't give as much. Now, maybe his heart wasn't in giving very much, and that's obviously something he has to give an account to for himself and take responsibility for. But what if somebody wasn't able to give? But then you, as somebody who was a rich man, then judges somebody who's poor because they didn't give as much as you did. That is not how we should judge one another. And that's what this passage is all about. It's about not judging one another because all live and all die according to the Lord and all people have to give their own account to the Lord. We must not use this process and the giving of any of these things to be something that we lord over our fellow brother or judge one another by these things. Each person has to give an account for themselves. So the guy that gave one half shekel and not another piece of metal more in the tabernacle, he has to give an account to the Lord for his giving, for whatever reason, whether he was able, that was all he was able to give, or that he could have given more and didn't. Either way, he has to give an account to the Lord. Just like the person that brought the handful of gold that was the gold that, that, that made the menorah, that person gives an account as well. But that's not for any one person to then judge and say, that person is great among us. No, we, we don't judge. All people give an account. And that is what 
the building and the gathering of these materials. That's what that half shekel is supposed to mean. That was the part that was commanded of all of us. Some people gave more materials, but when it came to the silver, each person gave that amount that was commanded by God so that every man of Israel was equal, at least in that regard. And that's also how God sees us. God sees his creation that we are all that, that, that we judge amongst ourselves and think some are greater than others. And only God is the one who can ultimately judge that. But we also in, in, in the God who loves his people, loves Israel, loves the creation. He sees us and he um, and, and he, he, he sees that we are all a part of the building of the foundation of his house. Now, the last thing I want to talk about here as we close out the book of Exodus about how Moses went into the tabernacle, arranged all the furniture, made sure everything was there, blessed the people after the creation. And after all of that happened, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So one more time, we're going to go to the book of Revelation to chapter 21, where we're talking about the new Jerusalem here and about how. The, 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 the new Jerusalem comes here in this place and the glory of the Lord fills the new Jerusalem. So we're going to c- conclude with this, with this whole idea that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle that was created in the wilderness and that it's the glory of the Lord that will come at the end of the age with the new kingdom and the new Jerusalem. Starting at verse 9 of Revelation 20, it says this, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in, a, in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of the heavens from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and the names and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south and three gates on the west. Now, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed. Twelve thousand furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. And he measured its wall. One hundred and forty-four cubits. According to the measure of a man. That is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper. And the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third uh, chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth christophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl, and the city and the street and the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty, the Lamb, are its temple. The city had no need of a sun or a moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. 
There shall be no night there, and there shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the blessing, of course, going into the future, the new Jerusalem, of what the throne of God and the very sanctuary of God will be like. Once again, there are many descriptions of, of precious stones, precious materials, gold that shines bright, and the glory of God and the light shining in it. This, of course, is a, is a vision that is much greater than the tabernacle in the wilderness. Though the tabernacle was made with some of the most beautiful things and precious things, it still was the glory of God that dwelt in that place and was there. And this is where the pillar of fire by night, cloud by day, appeared over the tabernacle and knowing that God's glory was there. When all of this was completed, what, what a joyous sight this would have been in all the camp of Israel to see the tabernacle being created. In the same way that this is the vision we'll see at the end of the age when his sanctuary is comes down from heaven where the, where the sanctuary that we pattern the tabernacle after comes down from heaven and is the new Jerusalem that comes here as the vision here was given in the book of Revelation. What a great and joyous day that will be and what a conclusion and a wrap up that will be, of course, to the end of the age and to the beginning of the millennial reign as it was such a glorious and amazing day when truly God had a place to dwell amongst the children of Israel, even while they were scattered and, and, and wandering in the wilderness. What a parallel that is. And I pray that that is the, um, that, that, that that's the connection by which we can teach about the power of God and what the children of Israel experienced in the wilderness and what we Hope as we pray and believe that one day we will see that vision, we will see that happen, and we too will get to experience what it's like to dwell with the glory of God. What a great day that will be. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this time, this opportunity, this instruction. Father, I pray that you would, uh, that you have encouraged us and blessed us, Lord, with all of these stories. Father, may we look at each day new, Father, as you have shown these visions and these revelations. Lord, Father, we know what we have to look forward to. So may we be encouraged, Lord. May we not have any uh, spirits of depression, anxiety, or, 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 or being miserable in the world, in the temporal world that we live in now, knowing that there are greater things beyond. Father, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit so that we can see your divine nature in all things, Lord, that we can see your glory and we can behold your glory, Lord, in everything that you've done and made and, and created here on earth, but also all the things you are going to do in the power and the glory. Father, we are in awe and reverence of who you are and your power and your glory. And Father, you desire to dwell with us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the gift that you have given to us, your presence, your life, your salvation, everything that you have given to us. Father, may it be in our hearts to return that gift back to you as a thanks for the gift that you have given to us. We love you, we bless you, and thank you. We give you all honor, all glory, all praise in this place. It's in your son Yeshua that we pray. Amen. Shabbat shalom.
אדוני פניו אליך ויחונקה יישא אדוני פניו אליך ואשם לך לך This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit LLgive.com. Thank you and shalom.